you may have noticed, uh, along with the, uh, <clears throat> the rather young people wearing these uniforms, there's some others wearing those uniforms that not so young. <laughs> but those are our leaders, and we'd like them to stand right now. Everyone who has led, and even if you're not wearing a uniform, you volunteered and led Pathfinders in the past year, please stand up. We just wanted to thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your ministry. And just say a short prayer blessing over you. Father, I thank you so much for these men and women, Lord. As we thank you for our children, we thank you for those who have the burden to lead them, to guide them. We just ask that you continue to be with them as this ministry uh, uh, continues to our kids and that it may reach beyond our families, our homes, and our walls, and that it would reach our community and beyond. We thank you for this bit of the kingdom right here in our midst, and we, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Michael Cheshire, pastor of the Journey Church in Colorado, wanted to talk to folks who, in his words, had hung up the towel on church attendance and then moved on. He placed an ad in Craigslist and literally boatloads answered his words. They were more than willing to have coffee and share their hearts. Most of them were in their late 20s and early 30s, and they said some surprising things. One most missed attending a local church, but they didn't miss it enough to go back. Two, many did. They felt a longing to try again. And three, overall, they're not really bitter or angry at church, but did admit to being happier now and felt more authentic about their faith in Christ that they had left church. Most shocking was that almost all of them shared their faith way more with their friends now that they had left church. Their explanation was they weren't trying to close the salvation deal, so their conversations just naturally flowed. At the end, he always asked his new, new de-churched friends what it would take to plug them into a church again. And the answer is always centered around two things. One they would need to see the church actively do real things in and for their community without being pushy about attending church. And two, they would need to be convinced that the Christians in that church were, get this, nice. That was the very word they used the most, nice. It's funny, it's really a word that you only use with children, he said. Play nice. Be nice. And somewhere along the line, the church seems to have forgotten that. He concludes by saying that Christians push and force fellow Christians to live exactly like them, parent like them, do marriage like them, eat like them, exercise like them, talk like them, vote like them, and despise the same people that they do. At moments like these, he says, I can't help but think of Anne Lamott's great quote. You can tell you've created God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. Pastor Walt and I have to admit that the hardest thing about trying to reveal the character of God and get to the heart of the character of God is that his children, his creatures, those of us who he's created, 
We all, in a tendency, recreate God in our own image, don't we? And the problem is, is that when we do that, we can go and we can pick and choose the characteristics about God we think we like and have him form more to our image than him creating us in his. We concluded last week that when humanity turned their back on God at the fall, when they, when they are left, all that they are left with is the little g-gods. The little g-gods of creation. Those idols that the commandment commands against. And that worshiping a creation that was now at its nature selfish and cruel and petty and compassionless. Gods that were angry and self-absorbed and could be bought off with sacrifices given out of fear. Now, while fear and being enslaved works perfectly in this fallen world, does it not? Works perfectly to keep order. Does it work with creatures who were created in his image? Creatures that inside them, no matter fallen themselves, how fallen themselves, still have the image of God. And, of course, the image of God is free will. The only thing that precedes love. Free will. We must have free will in order to love. God is love, and he created you and me in his image. And yes, we are fallen, but the choice remains. So, does force convert? Does coercion by fear give birth to true worship from the heart? How many worship truly from the heart today as the children were leading us? I know I did. Did you do that out of fear? Do we ever come to that kind of worship when it's out of fear? When we feel we're being coerced. No. Idolaters, they either trade in, they move on, or they just add more idols. Households full of them. Temples built on every hill. One God gets too angry, doesn't fit my image anymore, I'll create another one. A little nicer. Or maybe a little meaner. And it's just that what we do when we go and we try to uh, attempt to make God either nicer or meaner, according to whatever mood we happen to be in that day. God had a solution for that, though. He had a solution for all of those children that for generation upon generation had been worshiping that nature and had been coerced by fear and by guilt. He did it by providing a face-to-face relationship with him. He said, there's only one cure for this, only one cure And that is that you and I walk and talk together. So he comes to Abram. He calls Abram from his pagan home. And he calls him to journey with him. The living God. And he said, someday I'll bring a promised land to you and your children. These children have been enslaved by a pagan people for over 400 years. People who served these angry, made-up gods. And every day they would beat and they would starve and they would sap and they would steal the the will of a people of promise who by now don't even remember who they are. These are the people, maybe a million or so, that this one guy is asked to lead across a desert to the land that God promised Abraham's children. So we left off last week at the foot of Sinai. I just wanted to recap just a little bit. A place where the chosen children of Abraham broke their father's heart. 
He brings them to this mountain to offer them what he offered Moses about 40 years ago, what he offered Abraham nearly 430 years ago, and offered to all of, well, not all, but most of Abram's children and grandchildren all the way down to this point right here where he brings them all together. He brings them all together. Now remember, remember what he had given Moses that no one else has at that time. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses what? Face to face as one speaks to a friend. He offered Moses his friendship. Moses didn't get it at first. In fact, Moses was so frightened he couldn't even look at him all the way back. But that was 40 years ago. Now, now he gets it. Now he understands. He's been walking with this God and talking with this God face to face for 40 years. And all he asked Moses to do was bring my children to the foot of this mountain. Because I want to give them the same thing that I gave you. Bring the children of the promise here so the promise can be fulfilled in them today. Well, in a couple of days. He put them through three elaborate days of preparation, but he said something would happen on the third day. Something would go on. Prepare for the third day. Because on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So what happens on the third day? God does what? He shows up. He comes down. He comes down to Sinai. He comes down to the mountain. He gives some more instructions about what what you should be doing with that mountain while he's on it. He says, careful not to defile it or touch the sacred place. But what made it sacred? What is so sacred about this? Prepare for the third day, because on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai. And then he says, no hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot. He said, don't touch this place. Don't touch this place. But when the trumpet sounds a long blast, what may they do? They may go up the mountain. Now, I have to admit, I don't understand the preparations. I don't understand, don't touch it or you'll die. I don't understand, even if a dog wanders over there, shoot it with an arrow. Don't, I don't get that. I don't understand that. But I do understand that it has a, 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 an element of it of that this was their place. And God said, in this place, something's going to happen. Something that can only happen with me and with you. And he set that place aside. I'd like to think that he was creating their honeymoon suite is what he was doing because this was their marriage. What made the place sacred was that he came down and at the sound of the trumpet, what was supposed to happen? They would come up. And now they would have, all of them, what Moses has had for 40 years. Wow. Wow. Simple question, though. Did they take it? Did they heed the invitation? When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled. They were what? They were afraid and they trembled and they stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will what? We will die. I want you to notice Moses was just just as afraid the day he met him, wasn't he? Just as afraid. But what did Moses do? He stayed there. He stayed there. There was something about him. There was something about him. Moses hung in the game. I'm not sure what it was, 
But I, I, I think that it had something to do. I, I really believe it. it had something to do with, with Moses being trained as a priest. And he served all these mean, cruel, petty, angry Egyptian gods. But there was something about this one. None of those Egyptian gods had never called him up onto the mountain and, and, and started to speak to him. They had never done it. Moses said, I, I may be afraid. I may be afraid, but there's something about this one. Ra never asked me to do this. None of them ever asked me to do this. So we hung around. But they didn't. They were afraid. And rather than do what Moses had done, they what? They back off. They go to a distance. And then they do one other thing. They say, you speak to him. You speak to him. You begin to carry on the relationship with him that he wants because if we do, we will die. They didn't accept this, this offer of friendship, this offer of friendship, a face-to-face friendship with the God of the living universe. These people. And they said no. Immediately, God gives the children what they want. The people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses disappears into the cloud. Moses does what Moses has been doing for for 40 years. What does he do? He disappears into that relationship. He walks in and he's as face to face with them as he can be. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, you have seen for yourselves that I spoke to you from heaven. He he lets the people know, I didn't want an intercessory relationship. I wanted you. I'm the one that spoke to you. Moses didn't come down and speak to you. I did. What's interesting, he is having this face-to-face conversation with Moses, but Israel is listening in. But they're listening in from where? From a distance. Let them know. I don't have time to go into it, but for the next four chapters, he gives Moses the law. And it's very, very interesting. He, he, he summarizes the law on how they will treat him, no idols, so forth and so on. And then the rest is how they will treat each other. And he covers every aspect of human relationship. Speaking to Moses face to face. But the children only hear the voice. They don't see what? They don't see him. They're standing at a distance. And even at the end of all of that, at the end of all of that is when Moses walks out and all of Israel goes, these were great words. Everything he said, we will what? We will do. Was that true? No, it wasn't. Because all they did was hear the word. All they did was hear it. They refused the relationship, but they entered in just hearing the word. By the way, It's the danger of studying the Bible and missing the living God who lives in it. It's possible to have a relationship with your Bible and not have a relationship with God. It's possible to hear the word and not have that efficacy relationship, that one that could build you up, that one that can tell you that the God of the universe wants this friendship with you. He wants you in his presence. And the only thing, the only thing that can do anything for our sin is to live and to walk in that presence. Our only hope to change, our only hope for repentance is to walk. Because when human beings are just handed the word and no love or spirit or relationship behind it, they're lost. Allowed to see you, 
puts Jesus on the outside of the door and tries to tell him we're rich and have need of nothing. I understand your word like, like no one else does. I have present truth. But they leave Jesus outside the door. There's still, Moses, there's still Israel trying to listen from a distance. God later then calls Moses up the mountain. He keeps him there for 40 days. What are they up to? 40 days. He's up there for a month and a half nearly. By the way, 11 chapters he's up there. 11 chapters he's up there. And the entire conversation is how the priesthood and this whole sacrificial system works. He goes through everything with Moses. He tells them what the temple will look like, what it will be made of. He will even tell them what the rings look like that hold the curtains in place. He will talk about the priesthood and its vestments. He'll talk about every sacrifice, every animal. This whole thing, he lays out completely what Israel wants this Superficial, intercessory relationship. And after all that, after 11 chapters and 40 days, he comes down the mountain with something pretty special. Do you remember what it was? He comes down the mountain with a covenant, with a tablet, written with the finger of God. God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave him two tablets of the covenant, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And, of course, in their newfound intercessory relationship where they put Moses in charge of the friendship that God wanted to have with them, of course, they've been waiting patiently for Moses to come back down to tell them what God has said, haven't they? Nope. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. The face-to-face relationship God gives Moses strength. He didn't want to come back down. But all Israel has is this distance, and they get antsy, and they get discouraged, and they end up in despair. In fact, they even think that maybe this angry God killed Moses, and he ain't coming back. And if he doesn't come back, then what do we we got? What do we need? The gods that they left behind. Make us these angry gods. By the way, not only did Aaron, and Aaron is who, by the way? Moses' brother, okay? Moses' brother, who has seen God as about as close to Moses as anyone else. Because b- before Moses went back up the mountain, they gathered Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders. And remember, they stood, they stood at the distance of the tent. And they were about as close, almost as close as Moses, get, but not quite as close. Aaron is the one. Aaron is the one. They come to Aaron because he's his brother. And not only does Aaron consent to making a mold and melting the gold, he made the mold, melted the gold, made the calf. He then pronounces over it, here are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. He builds an altar, burns sacrifices to it, and says, tomorrow we will have a feast. 
You know what's scary? Is that that's when God sends Moses back down the mountain. Because I think what he was trying to prevent him from doing was having his own Passover to this golden calf. And when Moses comes down and asks his brother, dude, what's up with this? Aaron says, don't be mad. You know how evil these people are. They asked me to make some gods and with the most fantastic answer you will ever hear. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. They gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Before Moses came down the mountain to confront his people, God made him an offer. You know, if you want, I'll kill them all. If you'd like, I'll kill them all. I'll make a great nation out of you. You can lead them. He's still keeping his promise to Abraham, isn't he? What did Moses say? No. You can't do that. You can't do that. Because you know what they'll say about you? This is wonderful. He goes, you know what they'll say about you? They'll say that you led us out of Egypt just to kill us. And Moses is thinking of mission. Moses is thinking that, that everyone needs this relationship. This is what this relationship, this friendship does. He now knows God's character. He sees God's character. He knows that the only hope for this fallen race is God's character. And he says, no, you can't do it. And if you're going to, just take me too. Wow. But after Aaron gave him this answer, you think Moses regretted that just a little bit? So he does go a little crazy, doesn't he? Those tablets with the finger of God written on them, he busts them up, grounds them into dust. I mean, takes the uh, takes that and then the calf and grounds it into dust, burns it, grounds it into dust, puts it in water and makes Israel drink it. Yeah. He washed their mouth out with the soap. Didn't he? I bet he made them gargle. It gets really nasty, though. He tells the sons of Levi, Levi, by the way, Levi, the family, the tribe that will carry out this intercessory relationship, tells them to draw their swords, and they just start killing people. It goes nuts for a while. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. It is chaos. Then Moses thinks of something even crazier. Next day, Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can what? Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. See, they wanted an intercessor. They wanted a priest. What's Moses trying to do? He's trying to be their priest. Maybe I can go up. Maybe I can make atonement. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. What did Moses just offer to do? To die for them. Now, how many here think that that is absolutely remarkable for a man to do? It is on the surface. But what God thinks of it 
is telling by his answer. What does God tell him? No. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. See, my angel shall go in front of you. Nevertheless, when the day comes for punishment, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord sent the plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. They worshiped the calf the one that Aaron had made. See, Moses thought he could die for the people. They deserve death. I'll die in their place. It's remarkable. It's remarkable, but only on the surface. God says no. And here's why I think he said no. Here's why I know he said no. Moses, you just had a flashback to Egypt. I'm not an angry God that can be bought off by somebody's sacrifice. My children, my beautiful children had been sacrificing their children to angry gods for generation after generation. Now, I am not one of them. And if I accept your sacrifice, that's exactly what they'll say about me. I'll be placed on the shelf with Molech and all the other gods that require blood sacrifice. Moses, you can't buy anybody's forgiveness. Moses, you can't intercede for Israel. This relationship works for you and me. It doesn't work for them. You with me? What are you thinking? Or do you have more questions now? Because one of the questions has to be this plague, right? Well, they expected an Egyptian God. It's what they wanted. What would Egyptian God do if you angered him this much? Bring a plague. I think God gave them exactly what they were asking. Exactly what they were expecting. Exactly teaching them a lesson that this is all Egypt's Egypt's gods can do for you. One thing that's interesting about this plague, though, is that Moses doesn't tell you how many people died in it, if anybody died at all. And why would he leave it out? All the other plagues, he could tell you exactly how many people died in it. Right? So just a question. Just a question. God, even when justly provoked, even when dared, even when tempted to act like every other God would in the world, and, 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 there, isn't, and there probably isn't a judge in the universe that would condemn him if he carried it out right now, even when he's tempted and provoked by the very people who are throwing it back in his face, he will not do it. And he gets down to business. Exodus 33. Listen to this remarkable conversation. You can follow along Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, go leave this place, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They just violated the covenant in the most vile manner possible, and God says, I'm keeping my promise. I kept this covenant after Abraham broke it, and I'm keeping it for them. I'm going to give them the very thing that I promised their grandfather. Wow. If we were making up the rules, what would we do? 
Would we give them the promise? No. But notice what he said. I'll send an angel before you. I'm not going. It says, go to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you or I would consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Even if he was going with them on the way, they were not going to ask him. They were not going to come into his presence. They were not going to accept the invitation. You can't force a friend to be a friend. I made a joke about it last week, but really what he's saying is, I can't make them do it. And me just going on this trip is going to force myself upon them, and they've already made their decision about me. So he's going to give them exactly what they asked for. I won't go with you. I won't go with you. See, this is Moses' opportunity to get this all over with. Moses should say, let's get to the land. Enough of these people. Let's get there so I can spread them back out and I won't have to rule over them anymore. Go. I've had it. This is his opportunity. By the way, had he made this deal to the people, would they have taken it? They'd taken it in a heartbeat. That's all they've wanted. Get me out of the land of Egypt. Take me from my slavery. Send me to the land flowing with milk and honey. Why? Because when they get there, I'll find a God in the land. They'd have taken it in a heartbeat because this is all they wanted. All they wanted was this promise of this reward, this promised land on the other side. Moses, though, is in it for something else. Moses says, thus the Lord, in verse 11, he says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Again, what does Moses have that they don't? The friendship that he offered everybody. The friendship that he offered everybody. By the way, I left out the last half of that verse, but he said that he would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the tent. Who else wants this friendship? Joshua. By the way, the one guy that gets the charge to lead Israel in is the only other one willing to have a face-to-face relationship with him. Moses said to the Lord, See... You you said to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. You say that that you told me to lead up the people, but you're not. You don't let me know how you're going to do it. You've said, I know you by name and you also found favor in my sight. That's what you told me. He's reminding God of what he told him. And now you're backing out. You're going to back out of this now. So he tells him to prove it. If I found favor in your sight, show me your way so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider this too, that this nation is your people. Moses is saying, this is it. You're just going to leave us here? And when God reminds him, When God reminds Moses of what he had promised him, God then says, okay, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. And I will give you rest, he says. I'll go with you. Moses doesn't let up, though. It's almost, I'm not sure, it's almost like he didn't hear him. Moses is on a roll. You ever seen when people get on a roll? 
Moses is on a roll. He's saying, saying, no, no, you promised me. You promised me. You said that I could deliver these people, but you said that you would go with me. And now you're backing out. No, no, no. God then says, I'll go with you. I'll give you rest. And then Moses goes, if your presence won't go out with us, don't carry us up from here. Moses, I said I'd go. If you're not going to go with us, then let's not go. He turns down the promise of the promised land. Promise to the children. Promise to Abraham. He turns it down because God says, I'm not going to be with you. Moses surrenders this earthly reward because he still wants this friendship and he doesn't want it to end. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? How will anybody know that I found favor in your sight if you're not there? And he goes, and this people, how will this people know? How will anybody know that you favor these people if you are not with them? See, it's not God's plan. It's not God's plan for a people to go to, to a, a land and just talk about God. Just tell people about God. It's not his plan. We have to have a relationship with him. We can't tell people about him if we don't have this relationship. The relationship is what it's all about. The friendship is what it's all about. Not the promised land. I heard Morris Vinden say once that if God somehow were to come back and tell us that for some cosmological reason that we cannot understand, heaven will not be available to us. Forget the streets of gold. Forget your pet tiger, Greg. Forget all that. But you can still walk with me for eternity. He said we all should be able to say in a heartbeat. I'll do the very thing you asked. I'll do it. I'll do the very thing you asked. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. By the way, in that 11 chapters up on the mountain, he already offered to make himself portable. And he even told him to design the chest that he could carry him around in. I'll make myself portable. That's when then Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Remember what we said, the translation that probably is most accurate? Show me your glory, please. Then the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you, by the way, (laughs) broke. I will write. God atones for our broken covenant with him. As much as we would like to see God accept Moses' offer to atone for his sin, he couldn't because only God can. The only sacrifice acceptable will be one day his only son, his own blood, and there is no other way. 
The one thing I'm going to carry away from the first part of this series is Pastor Walt's admonition. There is no bridge there. There is no bridge across this canyon. Only, only the blood of Jesus Christ. No other sacrifice will do. Moses was a good man. But his blood won't atone. I won't be bought off. When Moses first met God, he tried to treat him like an Egyptian God. He's afraid of him, so he tried a trick. You know what he did? He asked him his name. Do you remember? What if they ask who you are? What if they don't believe any of these signs? What if they think I'm crazy? What if they ask who you are? What shall I tell them? See, it's an Egyptian priest trick. If, if the priests knew the God's name, they claimed that they then had creative control or creator's control over him because only God's name their creatures, right? Only God's name their creatures. So the priest, the priest convinced the people, I know Ra's name, so I can go on behalf of you. I can appease for him. I, for you, I can appease him. So Moses goes, what's your name? <laughs> I think the mountain rumbled at that point. Moses was already on his face. He's already afraid. And that's why he tries this trick. What's your name? So I can get control of this fear by getting control of you. And God says, I don't play those games. The Medes, the Egyptians, the Capnotians, they all play those games with their gods. I don't play those games. They ask your name. They ask my name. You just tell them I am. That's who I am. That Moses walks for this God, with this God for 40 years, talks to him face to face, treats God like a friend, and allows God to treat him like one. To me, this is the most remarkable thing of the relationship. It's one thing for Moses to, to accept the invitation and even chastise God okay, for making a decision. You can't do this. No, you can't do this. You made me a promise, and now you're backing out. You can't do this. By the way, only a friend speaks to a friend that way. It's one thing for Moses to have enough. It didn't even take guts. It took love. It's one thing for Moses to stand up and do that, but he also allowed God to treat him like a friend. To me, that's the most remarkable thing. That's usually the thing that stands in our way. It's the biggest thing standing in our way. Did he really forgive me? Do I really trust him? Is he really my friend? See, but he learns who God truly is. He recognizes his character. And he can see how much different now he is than these little G-gods. And when they became friends, guess what? God then told him his name. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and then proclaimed the Lord. It's translated Lord in English. It's those four consonants that we think sounds like Yahweh, but we don't. He tells Moses his name. God chooses to be controlled by love. 
Not by manipulation. Not by the blood of bulls or goats. But by love. Everyone else has refused this friendship. And you look in the Bible from here on out, anyone that doesn't have this relationship with him misunderstands completely who God is. They don't get it. They're the older brother. By the way, the older brother and the younger brother, the younger son, misunderstood their father's love. They misunderstood it. Why? Because they did not have this friendship with him. They, 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 they want to believe that it's true, but then they also fear maybe, maybe, maybe he is just a little bit angry. So we'll keep him at a distance. And they keep him at a distance and continue to keep him at a distance and ascribe things that shouldn't be ascribed to him because he can't walk with them. He can't tell them. He can't have the relationship that Moses has had with him. He can't reveal himself the way he wanted to reveal himself. So they believe the lies. And then they plead and they wonder where he is when things get tough. One question, because we're going to move on in a little bit in this series after this. After going from recognizing or seeing the character of God, we're going to move on to what the next step should be. But before we do, one question. Are you still afraid? We all are, aren't we? To a certain extent. But we shouldn't be. I shouldn't be, and I am at times. But one thing to carry away from this, you know, in this whole system of priesthood and sacrifice, in the whole system, he provided for this one priest that would have the honor to be face-to-face with him. How many days a year, by the way? One. One time. One time gets to go in that place where that little chest where he made himself portable And he gets to stand in front of him. And the Talmud says that when the priest did that, that was the one day that the name could be pronounced. So he gets to call him by name. He gets for for a second, just a second, to be able to have the relationship. By the way, it's not what God wanted. It's what Israel wants. But the amazing thing about God is that God will give them whatever they want. He wants to be with them so badly that he will still just be with them one day. If that's it, one day, one guy, I'll take it. Rest of the year, I gotta, I gotta live in this little, in this little ice chest. Okay. But this one guy, this one guy, gets to do that. And the first man to hold this office, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And put on Aaron the sacred vestments, and you shall anoint him and concentrate him, that he may serve me as priest. The first guy that gets to do this is the one that built the golden calf and sacrificed to it in the wilderness in the first place. The only cure to Aaron's stubbornness and idolatry is face to face with God. So if you walk away from here today, are you still afraid? Ask yourself why. Ask yourself, what do I have to fear? If Aaron had nothing to fear and could walk into God's presence, what do we have to fear? Long ago, 
God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. And when he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. Peace and face-to-face friendship be with us all. And remember, I can't do it for you. Pastor Walt can't do it for you. And you can't do it for us. We don't have all the answers. We try to give you the questions. But the questions you take to God. And remember, thank God for the questions he doesn't answer. Because if he answers it today, there's no reason to come back to him tomorrow. But peace be with you all. And that friendship he offered Moses, thanks to Jesus, can be all of ours today. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us together today and continuing continuing to allow us to see your character. Lord, please, as we read, let the words live and breathe and jump off the page and dwell in our heart. Don't let us leave it on the tablet. Don't let us leave it on the paper. Don't let us leave it in the screens. Live in us. Breathe in us. Let us walk in your presence. Let us, let us be able to walk in our communities and in our families and in our neighborhoods and say, I know God. I just don't know about him. That we invite you to come with us as Moses did that day. Bless this family, Lord. Be with them in their cars and in their neighborhoods and at their jobs. May we always be reminded that indeed you are walking with us today, that you will go up with us and that you will give us rest. I thank you for the gift that you give us to be in this family together and the gift in which you, that this community is in which you've placed us. Now go with us, Lord. Give us rest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.